Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brandom, a board-certified holistic nutritionist, as well as a functional nutritional therapy practitioner. I run an online functional medicine practice at my site, evanbrand.com. I help people around the world with various health issues that conventional medicine and doctors and practitioners, even naturopaths, typically don't have good results with. These range from digestive issues of all kinds, parasites, candida, any sort of gut symptom you're experiencing could be linked to some sort of infection in the gut. We use at-home lab testing to investigate these, and then we use natural medicine protocols to resolve those issues. Chronic fatigue, long-haul issues, breast implant illness, spectrum issues in children. I have clients that are two months old and some that are two years old and 22 and 62 and 82. So it's a wide range of different experiences that I've had and I'm very blessed to be able to help so many people. Uh, I also teach practitioners and health seekers this type of information and these strategies using my Functional Academy of Medicine and Epigenetics. That's called FAME, where I have online courses that are video courses where you can look at case studies from the clinic and learn how to implement those into your own practice or just into your own health if you're trying to help heal your family. So please check those out. If you want to support your health and the show, AuraRoots.com has all of my professional practitioner-grade supplements, including our best-selling grass-fed beef organs. But truthfully, at the time of this recording in the summer here, if you're not drinking some sort of professional electrolyte, I highly recommend you check out my hydration essentials. Not only did we put in the typical chloride, sodium, magnesium, potassium, like all the popular brands that you'll see on social media, but we've also added ribose. And ribose is really critically important for helping to maintain the balance of your electrolytes. And ribose is something that helps to fuel the mitochondria as well. Also, we've put close to two grams of vitamin C in there, and I'm not seeing any other electrolyte product on the market do that. So when you're adding vitamin C, you're typically going to burn that up like jet fuel under times of stress. And that could be heat stress, that could be physical, chemical stress, emotional stress. I've run thousands of organic acids tests, and everyone, myself included, has tested low and vitamin C, as in Charlie, vitamin C. So it's incredibly therapeutic for viruses and many, many other issues like skin as a precursor and a support for your skin health as well. Uh, so check those products out. That's called Hydration Essentials if you want to check out the electrolyte product. Half scoop, full scoop, mix it with some ice water that's filtered, and you will feel it. All right, we're going to get into the podcast here. Dr. Pierre Corey, an amazing human. This is our second show together. He's the former chief of the critical care service and medical director of the Trauma and Life Support Center at the University of Wisconsin. And he's considered one of the world pioneers in the use of ultrasound by physicians in the diagnosis and treatment of critically ill patients. He's done so much. His bio is just incredibly long, and obviously his bio changed since COVID because he's been an incredible instrumental piece at leading ICUs in COVID hotspots throughout the pandemic. And now he has a telemedicine practice where he specializes in helping people with long haul issues, vaccine injuries, and many, many other COVID related syndromes. So this is an awesome conversation. I'm really thrilled to have him back on the show and we'll make sure to put links to his practice. Also, his incredible book, The War on Ivermectin, which is our first podcast title. 
the medicine that saved millions and could have ended the pandemic. That is a best-selling book. We'll make sure to have the link for that in the show notes. So please support Dr. Corey and the mission. Let's get into the show. Buckle up. Hey, Dr. Pierre Corey, thanks for joining me. Hey, Evan. Good to see you again, man. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, I was thinking, do people really still care about ivermectin? And yeah. turns out they do. And turns out it's actually still trending. It's actually still, you know, as we're recording here, mid-August of 23, ivermectin is the number one trending topic right now. Yeah. So, so people do still care. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I guess maybe before last week it was drifting off into, you know, uh, you know, an old issue, but you know, the, the, you know, we'll start talking about what happened last week with the FDA case, you know? So my partner, Paul Marek is one of the plaintiffs in that case, trying to sue the FDA. Uh, it got thrown out of court the first time, but this was the appeal and the hearing happened. And I don't know if you've seen some of the newspaper articles, but people are in outrage because the FDA in court, the lawyer got hammered. I mean, the lawyer looked terrible for the FDA. She basically had to admit something we knew all along, which is that it's perfectly legal to prescribe ivermectin. The FDA does not have to approve it. And the FDA's actions trying to dissuade people, you know, the, the horse tweet, and then they put uh, a page on their website saying that the FDA hasn't approved ivermectin. They're trying to say that it's dangerous if you take the animal form. You know, they, they did all sorts of nonsense. And then they're in court and they're trying to plead with the judge that they weren't giving any recommendations. They were just making quips, quips, is what they said, because they're in the business of making quips as a federal regulatory agency. I, and, to, I mean, let's get the definition of quip. What? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what What are they? I mean, these words. It's a, a humorous aside or a humorous. Uh, a witty remark. A witty remark. Yeah, that's basically what I thought it was. So they were just being witty. That's all. Because that's what we pay them for is to be witty with Americans health, you know. And, and so I think they looked really bad. And. You know, a lot of people have been following the ivermectin story. They're 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 outraged because we know what the FDA did, and for them to pretend otherwise is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I think so. People are angry. It's just another data point showing how our agencies are captured, and and they're working for someone else. They're not working for us. Well, I know. Last time we talked, it was uh, two years ago, and you were like in the midst of your wake up call to this whole thing because you said in, in a way that you kind of believed in the system and you trusted the system and you thought like, oh, maybe like there's some coincidences happening. And then there was just too much blatant stuff for you to to think that it was anything other than being captured. And now here we are two years later, and it's clearly, clearly obvious that things have been amok from the beginning. And yep. uh, I saw something too. There was $325 million worth of, I need to get this right. Something going over to to Fauci and the partner. Yeah, well, that's that's the royalty payments to NIH scientists, um, and I, I can't remember how many there were. It's, that's about I think hundred or somewhere between hundred and three hundred NIH scientists collecting royalties from pharmaceutical companies. Right. So I mean, let's be clear. I mean, it's well documented. Bobby Kennedy did a great job in his book. But Fauci, over 40 years, literally built and transformed the NIH into a pharma pipeline lab. Literally, right, they, they, they use U.S. government money to fund research, and then their discoveries are essentially given to pharma, and then they get royalties, right? So they license their discoveries, and then the researchers get royalties. So they get government salaries, and then they get huge royalties from whatever they work on on their government salary, 
And, and so it's, it's not a public-private partnership. It's basically a takeover of that agency. And that agency has a massive budget in the many billions. And essentially, it's pharma who controls those purse strings. What gets, what gets funded for research? I mean, it's, it's a sad state. But yeah, that's, that's a hell of a lot of money. And, and a lot of this stuff is coming out. I think people are really learning about, and I use the term, how our agencies are captured. But it is regulatory capture. I mean, industry literally runs those agencies and explains every policy in COVID was all in the service of the pharmaceutical industry. Do you see it ever turning around? I mean, with this case and everything happening, or is it just too deep, too far gone? I've, I'm probably too cynical to say anything but the latter. Um, yeah. I don't know that those institutions or government can be reformed. Now, having said that, right, if you think historically, for instance, like the civil rights movement or anti-Vietnam War, where you literally had masses of people in the streets, right, over an issue that they were fighting against. If, if you can tell me how that scenario happens, you know, where people are really taking to the streets in large numbers, maybe you could see some change. But um, my sense, it's what you and I were talking about before we got on the podcast. I, I think the only answer really is a parallel system. So as long as we can preserve private practice and come up with ways, some payment models for people to access care outside that system, um, uh, cause that system broken. I mean, it, it, it is polluted and, and poisoned. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I think there are solutions. I don't think there's going to be a wholesale transformation, but yeah. here's the thing, you know, what you were talking about the last time we talked, right. And I was just kind of figuring stuff out. And I like that you said that because I knew a lot by August 21 of what I was up against, but I still had way more to learn, you know, and, and kind of, uh, you know, and then you also talked about how I was before, because this kind of all goes in the book. You know, I, I start out describing who I was before COVID. And I describe myself like this. I said, you know, I was like a daily New York Times reader. You know, I was a New York, classic New York City liberal, voted Democrat my whole life, you know, um, thought the New York Times was the paper of record, believed everything it said, you know, hated Republicans, you know, because New York Times completely, you know, propaganda, you know, demonizes Republicans. Um, I've now made probably my 500th consecutive conservative friend in the last two years. So like, nice. th that era is gone. But um and I believed in the high impact medical journals. I thought only the best science was published there and only the best scientists. And here I am three years later. And from what I discovered from, you know, really being on the front lines of that war on ivermectin is, you know, I, I can't even look at media. Now. I, I don't look at any corporate media. I do just to see what the other side is up to. Um, the journals are dead to me now. I mean, they've been captured for decades, and I've done done a fair amount of research in the history of the pharmaceutical industry and its influences on medicine. And and you know, and then the agencies forget it. And and so, but you know, it took me a while to figure it out. And and, and you know, he, I'll, I'll trace my evolution, which is I, I like also that you brought up like you know, you know, in the beginning when I saw the government doing stuff, I was like just scratching my head, and I, I thought it was stupidity. And ignorance. I was like, why? They're just being stupid. I'll tell you the first thing that the first aha moment I had in COVID was early. I just didn't put it together correctly, but it was in March of 2020 or April. And I, I remember I was driving in my car to a grocery store. So listen to the news. The news started to say how the FDA announced that they were restricting hydroxychloroquine to the hospital only. And I remember thinking, like, that's really stupid. I mean, 
if hydroxychloroquine is going to work, it's its antiviral properties. And of course, you'd want to do that within the first days of symptoms. The hospital is eight to 10 days in. There's no more viral replication at that point. Why would they do this? I was like, this, this is maddening. Why, that, this is just stupid. It's like taking Tamiflu, which, by the way, doesn't work. It's like saying Tamiflu, we're only going to give it to hospitalized patients, where it really doesn't work. You know, it's like, and so that was the first time. But I, I literally thought that was stupidity. And then the second major event for me um, was when they disappeared natural immunity one day with just one page on the FDA website saying that there's no evidence to support the testing of antibodies prior to vaccination, nor should you take into account their history of COVID to vaccinate someone. And when I saw that, I was like, now I started to get onto it. I was like, what is this? I was clearly, I interpreted, I was like, this is only about increasing the market of vaccine recipients. Because if you literally recognize natural immunity, either by antibody or by history, you are going to remove from the vaccination uh, uh, pool millions of people at that point. And so I saw why they were doing that, and it really shook me. But right around that time, you know, the vaccines in ivermectin, so my ivermectin testimony happened like a week before the vaccines came out. And I'll tell you, Evan, I was really confused in, in those weeks after my testimony because I got a lot of attention. Ivermectin got a lot of attention, but nothing was happening the way it should. I mean, we were getting attacked and I saw hit jobs in the media. Within two days of my testimony, the Associated Press called for an interview. Me and the team of the FLCCC, we were like so excited. We get to talk to Associated Press. It was going to go out across the country and world. We could share our data. And I did that with the reporter, like 25 minutes, I ran down all the health ministry data, all the trials, everything. And a day later, the article comes out and it's a complete attack on ivermectin. And they don't even, they barely mention ivermectin. They just say that it's another drug to debunk like hydroxychloroquine. This is the associated press. And we were just decimated by this. And then other stuff started to happen. Like my paper, which had passed peer review, was about to be published, suddenly the editor of the journal tells us that he's retracting the paper. And it passed peer review, four scientists, three rounds of peer review, and they retracted it. And then what, you know, I'll stop here, but what changed my life and what led to the book was, uh, and I've told this story before, but it was in March of 21. So it's about three and a half months after my testimony. I get an email one day from this guy named Professor William B. Grant. And he's like one of the top um, published researchers on vitamin D in the world. And he writes me an email. It's two lines. Dear Dr. Corey, what they're doing to ivermectin, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And he includes a link to an article, which is called the Disinformation Playbook. And it's written by this organization called the Union for Concerned Scientists. And I clicked the link, start reading this article, and like, everything just exploded in my head. Like suddenly I knew what was happening in the world. Like it suddenly had a, I could make clear sense of the world because in that article, it's a brief article. They got a lot of graphics and they just recount the five main tactics that industries employ when science emerges, that's inconvenient to their interests. And there's nothing more inconvenient than the ivermectin science. I mean, you know what ivermectin threatened. It threatened the entire vaccine campaign. It threatened to spike vaccine hesitancy. It would have demolished the markets for Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, Remdesivir, monoclonal antibodies. I mean, little ivermectin was up against like a $100 billion market, right? And so 
never has there been more inconvenient science. And when they detail the tactics and they name them after American football plays, like the blitz, the screen, the diversion, the fake, the fix. And I'm reading examples, historic examples of when industries deploy these tactics. And I could think of multiple examples for every tactic around ivermectin. And suddenly I'm sitting there at my desk and I'm like, I am fighting a global disinformation campaign executed by pharma. And so me and Paul and the rest of the FLCCC, that's essentially what we did for the last few years. And, and again, it was like the bad news bears up against the Yankees, man. I mean, you know, we did not have the firepower they did. But I got to tell you, we got a lot of support. Good donors came in. We used everything we could, internet, and, and we, uh, we were up against censorship, you know, Pay, they took our PayPal down. They took our PayPal away. We we're trying to sell don't you know clothes for don't to get donations on like a Shopify site. They shut us down. Press wires were shutting us down. We we're getting deplatformed off of LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. You know, accounts frozen. I mean, they were doing everything to to silence us. And and that was not about science. I mean, we <laughs> that, that that was not about that. And so anyway, I just want to say like by August when I talked to you. I'd already knew, known what dif- disinformation was. And a- on that day that I read that article, I actually made the commitment to write the book. I said, I am documenting this for history. And because I had that framework, my life over the next two years, I was able to like coherently put the story together of how they destroyed Ivermectin using disinformation. And just, you know, disinformation was pioneered by the tobacco industry, who effectively used it for 50 years trying to get you to believe that cigarettes weren't bad for you and that they didn't cause cancer. They did that for 50 years. And then obviously that the science, eventually they couldn't suppress the science anymore. And then you had that master agreement in the late nineties, but, um, but they're still, still doing that stuff. And it's not just ivermectin, right? They've been doing attacks on repurposed off patent drugs for decades in psychiatry and uh, cardiology. They always want you to take the pricey patented pill. Wow. Well, I mean, how about vitamin C? I mean, even IV vitamin C is incredible, and you don't hear about that on the news. Well, well, you you know my background with IV vitamin C? Well, I know that you work with Paul Merrick, and you yeah. all have done the sepsis protocol, and IV vitamin yeah. C is part of that. Well, well, here's the thing. I'm glad you brought that up, Evan, because Paul and I already fought the war on IV vitamin C, and we lost that one. Um, I don't think we knew what we were up against. I think we thought they were being stupid because the trials that they designed – um, you know, that eventually showed that ivermectin didn't work. And we saw how they designed those trials. And they, I mean, they just, we knew what they did wrong. They gave the medicine so far into septic shock, it could not have had a benefit. And they concluded it doesn't work. And we're like screaming, like, you're giving IV vitamin C 30 hours into septic shock. <laughs> you know, we knew it's very time sensitive. But the, the point about vitamin C, though, is we fought the war against vitamin C. And by the way, there's been, you know, the, the guy who sent me that email, he's been fighting the war on vitamin D, you know, for decades. And that's probably the biggest war because pharma has polluted the published literature on vitamin D for decades in almost every disease model, whether it's infectious disease or cancer or heart disease. They constantly are publishing trials where the doses or the formulations are given too low, too late, um, too slow to metabolize. And so vitamin D doesn't work. And so there's a huge body of literature which tells you vitamin D is not important for your health when the exact opposite is true. Um, you know, and then the the artificially reduced uh, normal levels of vitamin D, you know, that whole corruption, right? Where they, they're literally telling you that 30 nanograms per deciliter is enough vitamin D. It's absolute nonsense. People should be really up near 100 
in their levels, to, to be honest, to protect from cancer and other illnesses. But, you know, these wars on vitamins and repurposed drugs and alternative therapies, I mean, it's been going on for 50 years plus, if you could even go back 100. But so now I've fought in a couple of wars. I, I didn't know, I didn't understand I was in a war on vitamin C. Now I look back and I, I can't believe how stupid I was and how I interpreted what was going on with academia and vitamin C. Uh, but now I see it very differently. And I think they might have one more book in me called The War on IV Vitamin C, because Paul and I really, we we went through a lot with that. And uh, anyway, so this isn't our first rodeo, Evan. Amazing. Well, you should get uh, Andrew Saul as part of that, doctoryourself.com. Are you familiar with this guy? I, I do know his name. Yeah, he he knows a lot about IV uh, vitamin C, and he's written a lot about it. I oh, tons, tons. Yeah, I mean, he's the guy who first turned me on to it for cancer. I remember being in a dental clinic years ago, and there was a guy sitting there in the room with me because I had did some dental work done, and part of the protocol was IV vitamin C, about 50 grams afterward. And this guy was sitting next to me. I'm like, what'd you have done? He's like, I don't have anything done. I just have cancer. And luckily, this dental clinic was sort of helping all these cancer patients come in. So it was kind of through the grapevine. You knew this dental clinic wow. would help with cancer because that was the only place in town you could get the IVC. So that's yep. what turned me on to it. And I started looking into C and cancer, and it, it blew me away. I wonder, did you have that war on ivermectin uh, title picked out before we titled that podcast? Because I called our podcast the same thing. I did not know that. That's what it's called? Yeah. Uh-huh. Really? Yeah, the I war on ivermectin say- with Pierre Corey. I would say I think that the title came to me very early on. Yeah. yeah. I, I probably had the title in my back of my head. I don't know that I shared it with you. I think you came up with yours on your own. But yeah, no, that there is no other title for what, what happened. I mean, Agreed. it was a war. Yeah. Agreed. And this is a bestseller. So I do encourage people to support the mission, get a copy of this book. It is on Amazon right now. Bestseller in Forensic Medicine. Amazing. You've got Jenna McCarthy, Del Bigtree wrote the foreword. That's incredible. And this came out June 6, 2023. So make sure you all get a copy of this. Get the paperback too. I mean, buy the Kindle if you want so you could like word search specific things. But I mean, if you can buy five, 10 copies of this stuff, pass it around, drop it off at nursing homes or something. I mean, the older people, they have completely been brainwashed by this stuff. I mean, luckily my grandparents listened to me because, you know, I told the story with you last time how my uncle was in the ICU, 39 patients on ventilators. He was the only one that survived because we were able to get a court order and get ivermectin administered to him. He ended up uh, losing a kidney since then, but he's still alive now. You you uh, got a court order. Did you use Ralph Larigo or was it some other lawyer? No, this was uh, this was actually just done all locally uh, with my aunt, my aunt, who is a nurse. She just went down to the courthouse. This was back in Louisville, Kentucky. And so wow. she went downtown to the courthouse and a judge there just said, I agree. She looked at the papers. We sent in a few papers on ivermectin, early papers, and luckily they approved it. And then what ended up happening was the hospital ended up getting a judge to reverse it. But luckily he had already had about maybe four to six doses of ivermectin before the hospital's judge and attorneys could like remove his ability to get administered, but it was enough to get him off the vent. And like I said, he's one out of 39 who survived. Evan, let me, let me give you a piece of data around that. So in my book, there's a chapter where I write about Ralph Larigo. So Ralph Larigo is a commercial litigator up in Buffalo, New York. And very soon after my testimony, one of his longtime clients, his mother, who was like in the late 60s, landed in the ICU on a vent with COVID. 
This guy was following stuff, saw our organization, saw our protocols, went to the hospital and begged the ICU doctor to give his mom ivermectin. The doctor actually agreed, gave her ivermectin. She came off the vent, I think one or two days later, she's off the vent, she gets transferred to a COVID ward. Doctor there says no more ivermectin, even though she's starting to get worse. And so she's deteriorating. The client calls Ralph. Ralph, you know, uh, you know, sues them for a court order. Um, not as uh, quick a response as what your aunt did, but ends up winning the court order, right? Court orders for ivermectin to be given. She gets the ivermectin. She's out of the hospital six days later. But here's the deal, because you said there was 39 patients on ventilators, and he was the only one that survived. Let me give you what happened to Ralph. So over the next year, he got 200 cases of families that wanted to get their family member uh, ivermectin. 80 of them went to court. He won 40 and he lost 40. And just like what you just said in the beginning, he was winning regularly. But then all the hospitals wised up. They saw what was going on and they started coming in with big time lawyers and they did everything they could to prevent that ivermectin from being given. But in the end, check this out. 40 cases he won, 40 cases he lost. In the 40 he won, 38 patients survived. Out of the 40 cases, he won the court order. In the 40 cases he lost, two people survived. Good Lord. And, well, and that's why your, your your uncle's cases, it fits exactly with what happened to Ralph. And people don't know this. They don't understand. And, and when you think of all those families, of those that died and those who survived, and what they did, I mean, they all tried to save their family members' lives. And, and those that were fortunate for whatever reason to win that court case, it virtually assured the survival of their family member. And the unfortunate families where they couldn't win the judge's order, their their family members died. Yeah, it's a death sentence. It's insane. Yep. Well, you just you just shared this paper a couple days ago, so this is amazing. August yeah. 8th, 2023, this was an excess death study in Peru's 25 states. And I read through this whole thing because I wanted to make sure I was up on it before you and I jumped on here. And these graphs absolutely blew my mind. Shock. Specifically these here, this 14-fold decrease after new president took office, ivermectin, ivermectin uh, distributions hit, and then all of a sudden they were restricted. What I mean, I don't yep. know what the restriction story was, but my God, the graph is clear. It tells you as soon as it's gone, everyone dies. It was essentially a military distribution campaign and they were distributing ivermectin in numerous regions around the country and all at the same time. And you got to give credit to Juan Chimia, who was the first author and he used to do work for us as an analyst. Um, and you know he this paper is what would, would finally just said like we were or we already knew ivermectin was effective. There was so much data from observational randomized trials. But when I saw this preprint, I saw this preprint late October 2020. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that this was actually showing what we knew from the trials data, which is that this was showing in the real world if you mass distribute this stuff and people take it. Deaths and cases and hospitalizations absolutely plummet, and they're just obliterated. And and but now keep in mind this took two almost three years now to get this published. I mean they tried to publish over and over again. They finally got it published. Um, but it, it was a dramatic paper. The, just a preprint uh, was was absolutely overwhelming, and that's when we knew that this thing was a game changer. And um, but you know we had to fight a, a war of uh, disinformation. Well, last time you and I talked, you were you were 
seeing these numbers like, hey, this is a potential 70 to 80, 85 percent reduction in death. And that's exactly what we're seeing here, 74 to 86 percent, somewhere in that reduction of death. And the WHO, right, in their non-recommendation for ivermectin, if you actually look at their guideline document, and they did a lot of shenanigans, manipulations, but as manipulated as that evidence base was in their document, the trials that they finally kept in their little analysis found an 81% reduction in mortality with use. But you know what? They still didn't recommend it because, and this is what they always do, the trials were too small and low quality and that, you know, this whole insufficient evidence mantra, which they pull, which is that's what the authorities and agencies do when they don't want you to use something and they know full well that it works. They just trot out insufficient evidence and then they start nitpicking the trials with statistical chicanery and they use fancy words about trial designs and allocation and concealment and blinding. And they just bury you with all this smart sounding stuff. It's actually not that complicated. When you have a huge magnitude benefit, it's no longer about the design. So designs of trials, they can maybe, you know, find like some small differences that you might otherwise not. But when it's that large, you don't need a trial. And but they they dismissed everything anyway. But yeah, now the, the evidence is there. It's it's uh it's crazy. But you know, he, here's here's what I want to tell you is the main, I would say the main weapon. And how they actually won the war, if all of the things they did, there's a chapter in my book called The Big Six, and it refers to the six largest trials on ivermectin. Now, out of all of the trials from all around the world on ivermectin, there's really only six that are considered high quality and rigorous. And I'm, by the way, if, air quotes, right? I'm using air quotes around high quality and rigorous. Because these six were the only ones where every investigator on the trial was drowning in conflicts of interest with the pharmaceutical industry. These are all people who work for pharma. They landed as investigators on these trials. The, the manipulations and fraud that they committed in these trials to show that ivermectin didn't work is so extensive. Myself and other colleagues, we've written extensively about what they pulled in these trials. But each of those trials found a non-statistically significant benefit to ivermectin and they concluded that it had no role in the treatment. And every time that was published, it was published in the highest impact journals in the world. So New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of the American Medical Association, British Medical Journal. So you've seen that the tops of science publishing brazenly fraudulent trials by pharma-conflicted investigators. And each time the big six was published, massive PR campaigns, newspaper headlines across the world and country, New York Times, ivermectin found in, ineffective in latest high quality, rigorous trial. You know, and you saw that narrative over and over again, which is that the big high quality trials showed that it didn't work. And anyone who thinks it works doesn't know science because they're believing all the little trials with the unconflicted investigators. It, you understand what I'm saying? And so the big six, and, and the reason why I bring up the big six is because it really exposes you know, the foundation of all the scientific fraud, I believe, really occurs at the level of the high impact medical journals. Right? We call uh, myself and some colleagues, we call those editors the editorial mafia because um, they've been running medicine and medical sciences now for decades. And you, you probably know this, but former editors of those journals have resigned from their posts and written books about how pharma runs the journals. I mean, Marsha Angel was a 20-year uh, chief editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, the number one rated journal in the world. She stepped down from her post in 2001 because she was disgusted. She couldn't participate in the system. She saw how pharma was literally 
regularly publishing fraudulent trials to prop up their products, uh, regularly influencing uh, different professional societies. And, and so she left and she wrote a book and that's 20 years ago. You know, oh, and I God. just figured this out now. And by the way, they don't teach these books in medical school. There's there's no course in medical school which tells the young doctor in training about you know the history of pharmaceutical industry influence. I mean, they don't teach you this stuff, and you have no idea how bad it is until until something like this happens. Amazing how much more ramped up the corruption got from twenty two thousand one to twenty three. My God, I want to show you this picture. You probably saw it already. Joe Rogan uh, retweeted this guy who is a He's an embalmer. Yep. This guy, Richard Hersman, yep. and, and he wrote Democrats, Republicans, liberals, far left, the right, white or black, male or female, rich or poor. This is what I'm seeing coming out of the circulatory system during the embalming process since early 21. In the prior 20 years, I don't ever uh, I don't recall ever seeing this before. Something's causing this problem. I think we should try to figure it out because I see it quite often now. May God help us. And then he has these pictures for people listening on audio. Creepy, creepy looking pictures. What what is this showing? Yeah, so this is um, so normally when you have uh, clots in the arteries or veins, right? It's it's mostly fibrin and platelets. Um, what these clots are are totally novel, and it's mostly uh, you know an amyloid-like protein. It's a misfolded protein, and they're very different in character, right? They have a different color, different consistency. Um, they're much firmer, right? I'll give you an anecdote. So a patient of mine, um, you know, because I specialize in vaccine injury. A 26-year-old New York City policeman who was training to be a fireman. That was his real dream to be a fireman. So he was working out, doing a lot of exercise. And it's about, I think, six or seven months after his vaccine. Goes out for a run, comes back, nauseous, chest pain, sweating, goes to the hospital. He's got two massive LAD lesions, right? So for your listeners, the left anterior descending, also called the widow maker. It's the largest artery feeding blood to the heart. And he told me that when the cardiologist went in to stent it, cardiologist is trying to stent open this clot. And he said he can only stent it to 80% open because the clot was so firm, he was afraid of rupturing the artery, which is a catastrophic complication. And so a 26-year-old with two rock-hard clots in his LAD, that doesn't happen. And get this, he makes it through, gets his stents, he's on some blood thinners. And I've been doing a fair amount of blood thinning in my vaccine-injured patients. And his cardiologist decides to take him off of Zygris, one of the anticoagulants. And three weeks later, he develops a massive ulnar artery clot in the artery, in his ulnar artery of his hand. He couldn't move his hand. He was in excruciating pain. He went to see a number of doctors. They couldn't figure out what's wrong with him. And then they finally, you know, his hand turned cold and they found that he had a huge clot. I mean, this is... This is just, and, and th this is what's killing people. You see that in those jars. They're getting all of these weird, uh, strange clots. And, and that's why you're seeing all of these sudden deaths uh, of young people on ball fields. And, uh, you know, you've seen it on television, newscasters, uh, comedians, you know, people on camera. You know how many times cameras have caught people going down in the last two years? That That's not a common thing. People who are outside generally don't drop dead, certainly not at these ages. And if they do, it's extremely rare. Now it's so common. It, it, newspaper reports every day of people dropping dead and dying. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, what was it, last week or so, uh, LeBron James' son? Yep. Just had a heart attack. Yep. 
Let me figure out the date of that just so people want I mean, to know. Damar Hamlin, you can say whatever you want about that case, but when was the last time we had a cardiac arrest on a football field? Look at the Premier League. Like, I'm, a, I'm a Premier League fan. I mean, Premier, Premier League has had a number of arrests. And I remember le- there was a weekend last year where in one weekend of Premier League matches, I think there were two arrests on the field and two in the stands of people suddenly dropping dead. They'd never seen that before. I think it was all on one calendar day. In in three different matches, there was four different arrests. I believe it. I think soccer is the hardest one. I mean, if you think it, uh, about the amount of cardio that you're putting out for soccer versus any other sport, soccer is insane. I can't imagine running up and down the field like that. Yep. No, so you're the, absolutely right. So you think these people that are running like that, they, they the clot's already there. You know, it's unclear if it's a clot or myocarditis because clinical myocarditis could be another one because we we know there's a lot of that. Um, And, uh, you know, the the adrenaline uh, from when they're running, doing a lot of of aerobics, it does stimulate and and can cause thrombotic reactions. And it seems to be. But um, I, I think most of those arrests were arrhythmic and not obstructive. Uh, but you don't know. They certainly don't tell you, right? They don't do autopsies and tell you what they found, right? And so you're always left guessing. Even even Demar Hamlin, who no no medical information is being provided about him, which is quite strange for a public figure who had an arrest in front of uh, tens and tens of millions of people, right? And normally you hear about what happened to someone like that in the public sphere, and and uh, that's another tell, right? They they don't want you to know what's happening with these folks. And they say nothing about whether they had the vaccine, right? Oh, of course not. Of course not. What would that have to do with anything, Evan? Oh, of course. (laughs) Of course. Oh, speaking of, so you wrote this, uh, you wrote this article, which I'm I'm happy to see that that USA Today agreed to to publish it. So uh, you and uh, Mary Beth Pfeiffer wrote this. It just came out. So August 11th, and it's titled more young Americans are dying and it's not COVID. Why aren't we searching for answers? Now I read through this and I can read between the lines because that's yeah. what I have to do for a living. Did they tell you though, if we're going to publish an article, you can't use the V word? Did they say it like that to you, or what? So I, I will tell you that they didn't tell us that. But had they told us that, I don't think they would have ever told us that. It would just been a hard no. And I'll tell you that we, I've, I've published, I've probably published fifteen op-eds uh, since COVID in major newspapers. Um, myself and my writing partner, we know what flies and what doesn't. That article was never going to be published in anything major if we mentioned the vaccine. My shock was that if you read the article and the way we amass and we present this insane data of how many young people are dying and when they started dying, like you said, you can read between the lines, Evan. Of course you can read between the lines. Can the average American do that? But I got to tell you, read that article. And you try to think, gee, why are young Americans dying at such rates starting in early 2021 or mid-2021? What happened then? There's only one answer. It's the vaccine. But we didn't put it in the article. We just said, hey, can we get someone to look at this? Someone find out an answer? Oh, you saw this too. I found this. By the way, after I published the article, I wrote a substack on it. And this was a comment from a Japanese subscriber. Out of nowhere, he just said, hey, Dr. Corey, this is data from one of the big life insurance companies in Japan, right? Because my article was about uh, the life insurance industry in the United States and how they were seeing unprecedented uh, rises in death claims amongst young people. And then he sent me data, which you can publicly find. It's on the website of this uh, company. And here you're looking, right? So you see these 
Uh, average number of payments or the number of payments for death claims in the first half of 2020, right? A little over half a million goes up a little bit in the second half of 2020. And then in the first half, um, it stays about the same. And then all of a sudden, the second half of 2021, it goes up by 100,000. And then 2022 literally doubles what it was in the first half of 2020. Now you're at 1.2 million death claims being paid out in six-month periods in Japan. These are numbers that they've never seen before. Never. More than double in less than a year. Yep. Or a year and a half, give or take. I mean, I, I mean, you can't, it's very hard to describe that. And, and if, if, you know, one of the quotes that I put in the, in the op-ed, I wrote more of the quotes in the, um, in my Substack. but, you know, what happened with the life insurance, and I think you know this, but it was in late 2021, it was this random Indiana Chamber of Commerce press conference, and they had some business leaders there, and they had the CEO of a large life insurance company, and he just started speaking freely, and he just started saying, we are seeing death claims like we've never seen before. He said a 10% rise in a certain age group in death claims from year to year is a one in 200 year event. And he said that in young working age Americans, 18 to 64, that the death claims were up 38% in one year. So 10% is a once in 200 year event. And he's saying we're seeing so much death and this is the end of 2021. And that's what kind of exploded a lot of the attention. And a colleague of mine, Ed Dowd, a former BlackRock uh, managing director, who's now, uh, he's just a real data guy, sees patterns. And he he got a group of PhDs um, to do the analysis using government data, disability statistics, death statistics. And they show this insane temporally associated rise in death of young people that tracks exactly the rollout of the campaign and particularly spikes around the time of the mandates. You know, the federal mandates, the school mandates, university mandates, which are like September of 2021. And, and then you just see you see just masses of death. And um you know, if anyone listens to this, sounds like um, I'm crazy or some sort of dis- I'm describing some dystopian nightmare. Um, I'm telling you, this is data that I'm telling. If you guys, if anyone out there can come up with a reason why in the third quarter of 2021, the the people dying at the highest rates in society were white collar group life insurance holders. To hold a group life insurance policy, it's generally Fortune 500 companies. White collar workers, generally the most educated, the healthiest, they usually have the lowest mortality in society. And the, they started dying at massive rates in the fall and winter of 2021. Um, was Did global warming start then? Did the opioid epidemic start then? Were there lockdowns then? No, there were not. And you can see this in other countries as well. And so... Um, I'm glad you brought up the USA Today article because I think it was a singular event. I, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but we got a pretty unnerving op-ed describing a huge issue in our country and really across the world. And it got into USA Today. And like you said, you read it, Evan. You knew I was talking about the vaccines. I mean, you knew that the op-ed was about the vaccines and it got into USA Today. Good. Well, I hope it spreads. I mean, on the granular side of things, the functional medicine side, the integrated medicine side, I mean, as you know, I don't know, maybe you have a better answer. I can't find any data on how long does this mRNA tell the body to make spike protein? Is it forever? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? I can't find anything. So so there are studies which tell you how, so there's studies showing 
um, how long the spike protein stays in the body. So a guy named Patterson did work showing spike protein in our monocytes 16 months out. Remember, monocytes do not have a long life cycle. So for whatever reason, they're not dying off. They still have spike, and that's 16 months. Then you have other studies showing mRNA, I think, in the lymph nodes, two months out. Basically, the studies that show how long, they can only show however long they followed it. No, no one's done a two-year study from the first vaccine. And so like, and now it's just messy because so many people have had COVID and not. And and but but here's here's another way in which I interpret that. So if you look at the work of Arnie Burkhart, which I have to unfortunately say rest in peace, but he was a a, um, a senior German pathologist, and he came onto the scene because he started doing autopsies on patients whose families thought they died as a result of the vaccine. So he did autopsies and he stained, you know, when he took the tissue, he would stain for the spike protein. So he came up with a special stain. So it would only attach to spikes. So when he put the stain on the tissue, whatever binds, it can only bind to spike. And he was finding disseminated spike protein in all of the tissues, obliterating the spermatozoa. So it's filling the testicles, kidneys, spleen, brain, heart muscle. And these were people who died. And he found that 80% of all the cases sent to him where the vaccine was suspected as the cause, in 80% of the cases, he found that the vaccines were the cause. And largely, he found that they had spike protein in the walls of the larger the great vessels. There was uh, intimal medial necrosis of the large arteries, which is a very rare condition. And you were seeing destruction of, you're seeing aortic dissections, blockages, and what I took from his data, because he published on about 50 of the patients, is that some people turn into, this is how I interpret his data, some people turn into spike factories. They just keep making spike and there's no turn. And we already knew that. This technology is not mature. I think it's a crapshoot. First of all, who, how much mRNA gets into the cell? How much spike is being made? They just don't know. They didn't do the studies enough when this was launched. I mean, this was raced to market. And now we're seeing this is complicated stuff. I mean, you're, you're injecting genetic material and telling someone's body to make something. And by the way, what they chose to tell the body to make happens to be one of the most toxic proteins we've ever studied. I mean, the amount of disease and pathophysiologic disturbances that the spike protein causes is innumerable. And yet now we have people with genetic um, instructions to make that. And I, so I, I think it's variable how long it stays. I think just like it's variable how deadly the vaccines are, right? Because we know there's tons of data showing that most of the lethality and toxicity from the vaccines comes from very few lots. Most of the vaccines, in my opinion, were either placebo, they were inert, didn't have enough mRNA to be effective, um, or they were placebos on purpose. Or maybe they worked as they were intended, where you make a little bit of spike for a little bit of time, and then it shuts off, and it didn't cause too much harm. But we know that something was wrong with a, a minority of the lots, because that's where all the deaths and almost all the adverse events are coming from. And so um, I, I think it's all over the map. I think it's a complete mess of an intervention, and it's proven to be the, the most toxic in history. And it's unfortunate because there was a global campaign to put that in the entire world. I know. I know. Well, and remember it was told that it was just going to stay in the site of injection too, right? Right there in the arm, going to stay right yep. there. It's like, are you crazy? You don't have to have a PhD to to know it's going to go through the whole body. 
There's no question. I mean, the, even right, that, 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 I think you're, you know, a lot of us were troubled by what they were saying. We're like, how do you know this? Show us the data. There was no data to show that, uh, that it was going to stay in your arm. But they, they, they reassured you with as much authority as they could give you that this is safe, safe. I mean, come on, we had drowned with safe and effective for two years. And anytime anyone brought up a question, a concern, or a piece of data, which was really alarming, right? It was all... Everything is rare or just uncredible. Oh, these are just anti-vaxxers who are just, you know, complaining about the vaccines. It's 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 warfare. It's well, um, yeah, is informational your, warfare. Is your is your recommendation just natural blood thinners? I mean, forever? I mean, like I'm constantly staying or rotating through whether serapeptidase, natokinase, lumbrokinase. I just like to stay on them. I mean, our modern world yes. is kind of a hyper coagulable place anyway. So I just personally stay on those. So I'm on natokinase as a supplement. I plan to take that probably for my life. I, I think that, you know, there's so much evidence that um, really great health benefits come around. And that comes really out of Japan, right? Because Japan, um, they they live on natto, right? Which is that soybean, which has the natokinase. And Japanese are famous for very low rates of heart disease and extremely long uh, longevity, right? They they live very late in life and they don't have a lot of heart disease. And so, um, so I use a lot of natokinase, but the stronger anticoagulants, you know, it's tricky. I, I have some answers. I don't have all the answers, but I will tell you in my practice, right? So we focus on long haulers and vaccine injured syndromes. The patients that see me are really, really sick. They have severe forms of chronic fatigue syndrome with uh, post-exertional malaise. Like as soon as they exert themselves, they're decimated afterwards and they all have brain fog. And a lot of these folks are really sick. And when we put them, I actually put them on a pretty aggressive regimen. They're on uh, like Eliquis, so an anticoagulant, direct thrombin inhibitor, Plavix, which is a strong antiplatelet, aspirin, and natto. But I will tell you in those uh, who respond to the blood thinners, the responses are large. Like patients will suddenly start to feel incredibly better. And the challenge is we've messed around with like how how much can we get away? So in a couple of patients, we decided to try to do it without the Plavix. They felt worse when we held Plavix. Um, we I tried to do it with just a pure natural anticoagulant, like we said, with a mix of, of the ases, right? Natokinase, lumbrokinase, serapeptidase. That wasn't enough. It's, it's wow. this too many components of the clotting cascade and, and you can't just work on one of them. And so, um, but yeah, but again, we're learning this stuff on with our boots on the ground and, and, you know, on the front lines, we're not getting help with great research. There's some research on it, but uh, uh, the research effort in long COVID, and, and, well, there is no research in vaccine injury because it doesn't exist. Right. So how can you research something that's so rare? You can't possibly research again. The cynicism I hope is coming through the screen here, Evan. <laughs> Hey, well, you know, I, I feel the same. I mean, just what I'm seeing too. I mean, just in the past five years, the, the amount of people that are teenagers are in their 20s and they can't go to school and they can't go to college now. And I'm the guy who's supposed to save them. It's it's kind of overwhelming. It's like, this is unbelievable that they have to think about these issues. I mean, these kids that literally can't get out of bed or if they do try to go to the gym for 20 minutes, now they're crashed out for two, three days. It's yep. like, that's not sustainable. So that's amazing. So you're saying just the, the antiplatelets and the anticoagulants, that's enough to recover them. Cause when you're talking about the person, no. the, okay. No, not recover. 
Um, because I will tell you, I get patients a lot better. Uh, they, they have dramatic responses, but recovery to me would be someone who goes back to their baseline level of performance. And all of these patients come to me at maybe 10%, 20, and some of them can't get out of bed. I mean, I've had patients who, if they go to their mailbox on their curb and come back in, they're in bed for two hours. That I mean, was that's me. My, yeah, that's some of my sicker patients. But and not and anticoagulation doesn't work in all of them. It's it's odd, and, and I'm still learning like why some people have big responses, some others. But even with a really good response, they still have limitations left. I mean, it's very hard to get. You know, I would say in my year and a half of practice, my partner and I have seen probably three, four, five hundred patients. Um, between us, I think we have less than ten patients who are off all medicines, back to their normal function. We have a lot of patients who are back to their normal functioning, but they require ongoing uh, medication regimen. Um, so it's it's really hard to get patients fully recovered, but uh, we're getting better at it. But it, it is a wickedly complex disease, this vaccine syndrome. Well, I didn't get it, but uh, I did have the fatigue, obviously, just from COVID, just infection alone. I mean, this was like twenty twenty. I guess that was probably Delta at the time. It hit me hard. I mean, it was my driveway back in Kentucky was steep. So I went to the mailbox, came back up and I was winded. I'm like, this is embarrassing. Like, yeah. this is pathetic. And now luckily I'm much better. However, I was telling you before we hit record that uh, just being in large groups of people, a few days later, all of a sudden I'll feel the pots kind of ramp up again. Resting heart rate raises again. I'm like, what the hell is this? Is this because everybody has Apple watches and this is some EMF sensitivity thing? Is this uh, related to the shedding potential? And so sure enough, if I go and take a dose of ivermectin after being around three, 400 people, all of a sudden I feel better. Like, you know well, what, what the hell was that? To me, that that was a treatment and a test. If ivermectin is what got you better, it's not the EMF. It was definitely, you know, I'm not going to say definitely, but- we, my, myself, and my partner, we've developed enough clinical experiences with our patients to know that they are susceptible to shedding. And shedding is real. We know the mechanisms. We know that it occurs. There's plenty of evidence that the that these uh, that people can shed uh, either spike protein or nanoparticles. I think it's spike that they're shedding in exosomes, but. What we don't know is who is susceptible. You clearly are, I think, if this truly is shedding, I think you're one of those people who are susceptible. Maybe it's your the fact that you had a, a bout of long COVID and so you're particularly sensitive. But we also don't know why some people shed. Going back to your other question, like I think some people are spike factories. So some people are big time shedders. Most people aren't. We have no idea how many. I mean, there's so many good studies we could do on this, but it's not a study anyone's going to fund. Is there any clue about where the shedding could be coming from? Like if you meet a girl and you're like, hey, pretty, and you make out with this woman and she's vaccinated, is it saliva? Exhaled breath is one. Definitely okay. exhaled breath. Uh, and then uh, secretions, sweat, skin. Um, th th those are the two main ones. So, okay. Yeah, so we, if you're at the, so, so if you're in the sauna, then you're at your local gym, you're in the sauna and there's five other people in that sauna and they're just sweating their ass off. If one of them is a shedder, and again, I don't know how many people are shedders, uh, and I don't know how many people are susceptible, but we, you know, I've treated people for shedding, and they've gotten better with ivermectin. And, and actually, the only ones that I've, I've treated purely for shedding, this is actually before I went into practice, uh, it was actually two. It was two women who gave me a clear history of a close exposure. I think one was a massage therapist or, or went to a massage therapist who'd been recently boosted. The other one went to an acupuncturist. And both women had the same story, um, which is that their cycles had been regular for decades. Uh, one was late 30s, the other one was late 40s. She says you could set 
your clock to my menstrual period. And after this event, she felt unwell, missed her period, breasts were swollen, she was cramping, and she felt terrible. And she's like, I don't know what this is. And she took pregnancy tests just to make sure she wasn't pregnant. She wasn't pregnant. And I had already known ivermectin had efficacy in long COVID. And I said, you know, why don't we try ivermectin? Literally five days after ivermectin, she got her period back after not having it for two months. Um, and a similar event happened with, with, with another patient. And so um, now, and we, and that, those are the only my two first cases. We, we've had many other shedding experiences. Yeah. No, I've heard the same thing too from massage therapists. Actually, they'd have sought me out like, hey, this person lays on the table. Everything's fine. Then after that particular one, all of a sudden I'm wrecked, heart racing, pots yep. exacerbated, et cetera. It's crazy. So crazy. the question is, I mean, how long will, the, will that go on? Let's just assume that everyone stops getting these things. I mean, how, how long is the shedding going to go on for? Well, that that's such a great question because he, the data on vaccine uptake, I haven't seen it recently, but I would say maybe the last time I looked was a couple of months ago. I thought the booster uptake or whatever this new bivalent nonsense is, it was less than 20% of people were taking this booster. And I, and I think it was it might even be lower now, but there are very few people taking COVID vaccines. Now, it's on the childhood schedule. Um, I learned a week ago from a, another colleague who runs a nonprofit that right now in this country today, there's 104 universities in this country that are still mandating the shot. For college. For 104. Now, we have thousands and thousands of colleges and universities in this country, but there's still 104 that have an active mandate. So the vaccines are still in there, but they're not even close to, to how much we were vaccinating. And so that goes to your question, how long can this happen? I, I just don't think we have enough answers. I would love, you know, if we could take patients who were vaccinated, let's say early 2021, hadn't gotten a booster and look at their secretions, look at their exhale, look if there's any spike protein in exosomes and see, you know, what is the likelihood that someone two years out can still shed? I, 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 these are questions I don't have the answers to, but I think they're the questions that we should be asking. Well, I've seen it mess up marriages too, because they'll say the husband yes. got it for the job and the wife didn't. And now every time the husband's around the wife, she's got bleeding issues, bleeding in between her cycle, et cetera. Evan, you're way out of the game, man. This is the stuff that me and my partner deal with. And my partner, especially, he, he, um, one of the things we're doing is, um, and he has a lot of data on this. He started looking at it with a couple of his colleagues, but we're measuring semi-quantitative spike antibody levels. And we're seeing that the spike antibody levels are correlating um, with symptoms and responses to treatment. So for instance, natokinase is one of our best. And, and so the spike antibody levels, we think it's a proxy for spike. So how much spike you have or are still making, if you're still making a lot, you're going to have a really high spike antibody level. Now, there's some caveats, right? If you just had COVID, it's hard to interpret that. But we have patients and the scale, it goes up to the, the top numbers when it's over 25,000. So I'll have patients with 600, 3,000, 10,000, 15,000. But we, you know, my partner has patients, just like you said, where like the wife is sick, husband travels, comes back. When he's in the house, they start to feel a lot worse. And he's checked the spike antibody levels on the spouses. 25,000. On the spouse. So the woman suffering. The of the woman who thinks she's being shed upon by her husband. And so we oh. have some data to support like, and, and not that to be a shedder, you have to have a super high level. I think, I think probably it should be a high level, but, um, but you know, the husband's also asymptomatic. So it's not, you know, it, there's a, 
you know, this, this use of the spike antibody, it's more of a hypothesis and we're just exploring correlations and, and, but, but we, we have seen cases where we've been very concerned about the spouse and, and the spouses have agreed to test for spike antibody levels. And, some of the spouses haven't been haven't been vaccinated in a year, year and a half, and they still have very high spike antibody levels. Hmm. So I wonder, I mean, does ivermectin fix all that? There's got to be some sort of immune regulation, though. Maybe medicinal well, mushrooms are going to help, like the TH1, TH2 dominance? or well, I think all of that. So ivermectin would help in, I think, controlling some of the aberrant sort of inflammatory cytokine pathways. It also binds to spike. But I don't know that it doesn't break down spike. And there are things that do. So we use a lot of natokinase. We're using this new compound called quantum N-acetylcysteine. It is not your traditional N-acetylcysteine. It's particularly formulated. And there's studies showing that it breaks down 96% of spike protein. And like you can actually start to see spike protein fragments in the urine after taking this stuff. So we have a few things. We think intermittent fasting or somewhat prolonged water fast, right? With autophagy that that probably can rid yourself. But, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get spike out of people. And, you know, it's not clear, you know, we're doing it because we think it makes sense on paper. But again, we don't have good studies because there's no commercially available test for actual spike levels, right? The only way you can find spikes is by doing a biopsy of the tissues, um, taking it in the blood. You, you, there is no commercially available test for spike in the blood, um, you have to need a research lab. So, you know, we don't even have a good diagnostic tool to see who still has a lot of spike in them and, and what are the best things to break it down or get rid of it. Does does intermittent fasting work? We, we don't have trials on that, but we're just using logic, reasoning, understanding of physiology and, and hoping that we're giving good guidance that way. Amazing. So, uh, and you can't always say that the high spike antibodies are going to correlate to anything else, right? Like you're not, like if you see high spike antibodies in this female, if you run D-dimer, CRP, are those going to be up or not necessarily? So not necessarily. That's the other interesting thing. Most of my patients, when they come to see me, they've been sick for a year, year and a half, sometimes even two years. And What's shocking about them is when you do like comprehensive serologic testing, blood tests, you'll see CRPs that are very low, D-dimers are low. Like I have, we have plenty of patients whose D-dimers are low, they're normal range, but they respond really well to anticoagulants. Now there's a good reason why that might be, right? Because D-dimer is from the breakdown of fibrin, right? So breakdown of the clots. So if the clots aren't being broken down, your D-dimer is going to be very low. And so, and that's what we think um, is happening with some of these patients who respond. But the, the inflammatory markers are shockingly not very high in these patients, yet I'm treating them with a number of different anti-inflammatory uh, uh, interventions, and they get better clinically. I, I still don't know why the traditional markers of infl systemic inflammation in the body are not often elevated in my patients. Wow. Is there another biomarker you can use then if you wanted to measure your clot potential? Like I'm, I'm waiting for one. We don't have one biomarker in this disease. It's literally vaccine injury syndromes and long-haul COVID syndromes. They are 100% clinical diagnoses. There okay. is no criteria. There is no, I mean, the imaging tests, these patients all have cognitive issues up the wazoo. MRIs are negative. CTs are negative. LPs are negative. EEGs are negative. Um, and so our traditional diagnostic uh, tests just are not revealing of what's going on. In fact, that's actually one of the tragedies of the vaccine injury is that they're so sick. They have so many complaints and system issues, symptoms, yet they go to a system doctor. The doctor runs a whole battery of traditional tests. 
and they all come back either normal or the abnormalities are just fragmented and not actionable. There's just no clear picture from doing their blood work. All of their imaging is normal. Their echoes are normal. And so what do the system docs tell them? It's all in your head, right? And they refer them to psychiatry or they just refer them to other specialists, to physical therapy or whatever. It's it's so sad, the plight of the vaccine injured. they, They really are getting failed by the system in every way. It's totally dark humor, but there's a meme that I've seen going around. It's a person like this laying in a casket and the doctor is standing right there at the casket and there's a little speech bubble and it says, your labs are fine. (laughs) That's exactly. Oh my God. But like every joke, there's some truth to it. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I, I sitting on the outside of the system and having so many patients come to me after they've journeyed through the system and the system doctors, and I get to hear what doctors have told them, what their treatment experiences have been like. I mean, they're, they're literally traumatized from these. They're angry, they're resentful, they can't believe how little help, how no one's offered to treat them with anything because they don't think there's anything wrong with them. And 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 then there was a time when these vaccine injured patients if they went to see a doctor and brought up the idea that what was wrong with them was caused by the vaccine, you would see this cognitive dissonance and dissembling of the doctor. I mean, the behaviors and statements that I've heard doctors make are just egregious. Um, I would say now it's a little easier. And I think you can tell a doctor that a vaccine injured you, but during the height of the vaccine mania and the propaganda, I mean, uh, doctors were not hearing it from patients. They did not want to hear of your BS. You know, these things are safe and effective. You're overreacting and you should go to psychiatry. I mean, that's yeah. kind of what I, I heard happening to my patients. Oh, all, all day, every day. You yep. know, I, one thing I would do is I would say, look at the organic acids. I've run it on everyone now, even if we suspect that, you know, it, it was a vaccine or, or something else, because on the oat test, anyone that's having like the post-exertional malaise, they're always going to have these elevated mitochondrial markers. And then as soon as we give these people like PQQ can help generate yep. new mitochondria or we'll do like rhodiola or some other adaptogens. All of a sudden these markers self-correct. Now we do a lot of like the herbal blood thinners. Now I can't prescribe like you, so I don't have the the other ones, but the, right. uh, what did you say was Eliquis, right? Eliquis, yeah. So, so I don't have that, but, but every single person who has the post-exertional issue, there's always at least one, two, three, or four or five, or maybe all of them. And so this is a urine panel that we run on everybody. And you can look at brain chemistry too, because I'll often see that the brain chemistry is just totally whacked out. And then we'll see lots of quinolinic acid. So we know there's some level of like neurotoxicity, brain inflammation issue going on. And uh, there's herbs that you can use and and reverse it. So I don't think I'm even 100% better, truthfully. Me personally, I think I've got maybe, I don't know, 90% back. But like I told you, if I'm around those groups again, boom. There's something hit me again. And I would say 90% is where I'm pretty happy with my pay. I want to get them to a hundred, but I'm fully aware and I'm humble enough to admit it's very hard to get my patients to a hundred, but the the 90%ers are, 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 you know, they're very happy because, you know, one, the other thing I learned is some of my patients came to me so sick. They're like, and they'll grade it themselves. They say I'm a 20% function. If I can do some things and get them to 40%, they are so happy. And but me as the physician, as I listen to them and what you're going through, I'm I'm happy they're happy because they went from 20% function to 40, but I'm like, you're still really disabled. I mean, you're barely leaving the house. You can't do this. They're just happy that a lot of their really insufferable and 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 really uncomfortable symptoms, you know, are mitigated or softened. But um 
you know, but it's, it's stepwise. We're still working and trying to figure out how to get these patients back to normal. Yeah. Well, I look forward to talking with you again in maybe another year, six months. Let's do something to where we look at some case studies together. Cause I've done those case study videos and people tell me those are the most impactful, most transformative. They can send it to their doctor. Watch this, look at this lab, look at this protocol, look at the results. So we should do like a case study thing. Cause I know my people like it. I have great cases that you and I, you and I could discuss. I'd love to hear your perspective on, on what you would do for some of these folks. And, um, Anytime, Evan. You know, I like talking to you and you, you and I can talk medicine all day. Cool, cool. All right. Well, we want people to go get a copy of the book. Obviously, uh, they can check out your sub stack. So we'll have a link to that. You are Pierre Corey on Twitter. And then the Dr. Pierre Corey website is the clinic site. So if people do need help, I think this is an amazing resource and you're doing telemedicine, which is incredible. So anyone worldwide can reach out. It's called Leading Edge Clinic. And there's a nice photo that we'll load here in a second. Yeah, I was going to say, where are my photos? But It's I guess coming, it's, it's coming. There oh, it is. There we go. There we go. Beautiful, beautiful. So this is a telemedicine. Now, is this is this worldwide in terms of medicine and everything? Okay. Not only that, Evan, but we practice in all 50 states. Uh, and I even see patients in other countries like you do. And um, I'll give you another last little fun fact before we go. But I practice now under the jurisdiction of the Crow Indian tribe. Uh, which is actually a federal statute. It's um, and uh, all of my patients, in order to see me, they have to join the tribe. It's only thirty five dollars for the year, but I'm a registered practitioner. And once they become a tribal member, that relationship is now protected from state oversight. So I don't have to worry about my state medical boards uh, asking any questions. If there's an issue with a patient, they have to bring it to the tribal council. Um, and they have their own process, but they're generally pretty supportive and they look for mediation if there's an issue. I haven't had any issues since I've done that, but um, I'm just trying to protect myself. You, you know, they're after me. And so uh, I have many complaints against my state medical board, none from a patient, right? All just pharmacists and physicians calling me a misinformationist. But um, uh, I'm trying to keep my livelihood alive. And I got to tell you, our patients need me and my partner. I mean, if if, if we got shut down, I, I got to tell you, there'd be a lot of patients that would suffer. And uh, so we're trying to stay alive for them. Oh, as man. Well as goods. Yeah. Man, well, well, God bless you. And I hope people, when you're meditating, you're praying that you're sending good, good vibes his way and healing energy his way, because there are massive amounts of people that will never find or hear this information. They're suffering. They don't know why. Their family, their children, their parents are suffering. They have no clue why. They don't know where to go. The clinic on the street's not going to help them. The local doctor in the town's not going to acknowledge this stuff. So the numbers that you and I are describing, they're far bigger. We just, yeah. we, we can't see it. So God bless you. And thanks so much for what you do. Thanks, Evan. Really appreciate it. Look forward to next time. All right. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I would definitely check out his Substack page, his Twitter page. This is an easy way for you to be able to keep up with the data. He does a great job of sharing new papers, new graphs, new data for you guys to understand what's really going on and where do we go from here. The battle is not over, so we need to continue to focus on improving our health as much as we can. Getting that clinical data is really key. As he mentioned in the podcast, there's not a ton of things you can do from the blood to really investigate this. Fortunately, I've seen quite a few cases where on the organic acids testing on the stool panels, for example, we know that uh, COVID affects the gut microbiome significantly. And so just seeing the dysbiosis issues and resolving those has been able to improve energy reverse brain fog, increase 
sleep quality because that's been something that's been disturbed in a lot of people as well get people back into exercise so with the functional labs you can do so much so i hope to share more of this with dr Corey, and then we can try to implement that into what he's doing with the practice i think oat testing can transform the success of so many people even to a greater level and this is something that you should have done Obviously, I'm looking at a lot of mold colonization, candida, bacterial overgrowth issues, neurotransmitter problems, nutrient deficiencies, but there's so much more that could be done. So don't give up. Don't lose hope. Even if you've been given the cold shoulder by practitioners before, with the amount of data you can get just from urine and stool, you can transform your life. So I encourage you get the data, get the data, get the data, figure out where you are, what's your baseline so we can go from there. If you want to reach out and you want to work one-on-one, happy to do so. My site, evanbrand.com has all the details. Uh, If you're specifically needing the type of care and solutions that Dr. Corey's talking about, we have the link in the show notes there, but it's drpierrecorey.com. So if you want to reach out to him and his team, that's a great, great telemedicine service as well. If you're looking to resolve more of the functional issues, the gut, the sleep, the skin, the mood, the brain fog, those type of problems, the chronic fatigue, the exercise issues, we're seeing a lot of good benefits with getting the proper data. If you're really, really sick, honestly, you probably need some hand-holding, so I would definitely have a practitioner on your team. Now, if you're someone who just wants to optimize, you're already doing really well, maybe you're a good candidate for enrolling in one of the Functional Academy of Medicine and Epigenetics courses that I offer. That could be the Better Belly. It could be the Better Energy course, which teaches you a lot about mitochondria and chronic fatigue. Maybe it's the Confident Coach course. If you're a practitioner or someone who's wanting to either start or grow your online practice, My coaching course will teach you how to do that. So those are the opportunities I have to help you. And I encourage you to help yourself. If you want to be the best dad, the best mom, the best spouse, the best whatever, it starts with you. And I know you may be spread thin and depleted and you've got seven different things and people to worry about or 20 different people and things to worry about, but You really have to be self first so you can be the best version of yourself and then put that back out into the world. So keep going. Don't give up. I'll talk with you again real soon. Take care now. Bye-bye.